So we're going to carry on looking at John's Gospel, John chapter 13. We saw two weeks ago, last week we were looking, and we had a little break in Luke's Gospel uh, because we were launching a painting, uh, but this week we're going back to Luke. So chapter 13, we're going to read there from verses 18 to 38. The words will be up on the screen behind. If you want to get a Bible from one of the tables at the front, then feel free to do that. Uh, then we'll read together. Excuse me. So the context for this reading is the Passover. Jesus, uh, John, in recording this passage, um, his timing seemed a little bit different, but we have to conclude that uh, even though he starts off by saying it was just before the Passover festival, and even though this passage doesn't explicitly reference a Passover meal or indeed talk about Jesus breaking bread or giving the cup, this is the only context time-wise within John where this could have happened. And so this is the Passover meal. Um, and Jesus, in this passage, chapter 13, in John's gospel, where he doesn't talk about the bread and the wine and communion, uh, <clears throat> he, does talk, he does talk about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. So we looked at that earlier on, that Jesus washed his disciples' feet as a sign of his uh, own humility or self-humbling, but also as an instruction and a demonstration to all of us, his disciples, uh, who are his disciples, that that is what he calls us to as well, that the ministry of foot washing, if you like, is something, uh, not necessarily literally, although it might be, but it's something that we are called to as well. So from verse 18, Jesus then goes on. I'm not, in fact, let me go back a little bit, sorry, Anna, but just listen because I gave Anna uh, the reading from 18 onwards. Jesus said, um, when he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. This is from verse 12. Do, not, do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. And now from verse 18. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, 
It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Amen. May God bless his word to our understanding. We thought over the weeks of the, the darkening climate around Jesus' ministry and around the approach towards this Passover, about the fact that ever since Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, a man who had been dead for four days, in front of many witnesses, a significant number of whom came from Jerusalem, and even though the event took place in Bethany, a little hamlet two miles outside of Jerusalem, Lots of Jerusalem folks had come to Martha and Mary to console with them and offer their condolences. And so, four days in, the miracle of the resurrection of Lazarus happened, a time when probably, arguably, the greatest numbers would have been present, a time when certainly in a hot Middle Eastern culture and climate, the body of Lazarus would be in an advanced state of decomposition. And so, if you like, at almost a perfect moment, Jesus raised Lazarus to the dead, confirming the incredible miraculous nature that this couldn't simply have been that the diagnosis of death was wrong and that he'd somehow just passed out. But here's a man who four days in the tomb is going to have significantly decomposed. And so, in front of everybody, Jesus calls forth Lazarus from the tomb. And here's this man alive in the presence of all of these witnesses. Well, they'd heard amazing things about Jesus, but they'd never actually heard or indeed witnessed something of this order. A man raised from death to life. And so, news about Jesus spread it had already spread, but now it's spread into Jerusalem. 
and began to raise alarm bells in the ears of the religious power brokers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were allowed to operate the Jewish religion under the umbrella of the occupying Roman power, but only if good order was kept. And so Jesus, with his popular following, not under the control of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, represented a threat, a threat to the order of things, a threat to the freedom to practice the Jewish religion, a threat to the power base of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so they decided that in order to maintain the status quo and keep things under wraps, in order to preserve their own interests and their right to rule, they needed to make an example of Jesus, and so they plotted to kill him. And so they plotted to kill him, and they found a means to do it, an insider. I think the language of this week is a whistleblower. Somebody who, on the inside, would act on behalf of people on the outside. Anyway, the climate was growing dark, and Jesus knew it. The disciples didn't understand just where things stood. But Jesus knew. And we've had and looked at these beautiful little episodes that are tucked in amongst this darkening climate of conspiracy and murder and threat that would culminate in the, in the crucifixion of Jesus. We have this beautiful little moment where Jesus is with Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and there's a dinner in the house, and it's rich with fragrance, and it's rich with uh, celebration, and it's full of love and intimacy. And there's service, and there's ministry, and there's the presence of Lazarus, whose very being there with a pulse alive was testimony to what Jesus had done. And the only bad smell in the room, if you remember, was Judas objecting that the perfume that Mary broke at great sacrificial expense and poured over Jesus' feet could have been sold on the money given to the poor. And so in an intimate gathering, the only jarring note was Judas. And here we are again in the Passover celebration. And a Passover celebration is one of those, if you're not Jewish, I don't think you get the depth, at least I don't. I'm not Jewish ethnically or by background, and I don't get the richness of Passover. I understand that it's important, but it's somebody else's festival. But if you're Jewish, you've been doing Passover for your whole life. You did it with your grandparents and your uncles and your aunts. You did it with your family. You did it in your community. And one of the rich things about Passover is that in order to train the young, they get the kids to ask the questions that form part of the liturgy, the words that are spoken around the table. So it means that from you were the earliest days when you were able to speak, you got to ask the questions. And you were a valued and important part of the Passover meal. Now, for Americans, that might be Thanksgiving. For us, that might be Christmas. But every culture has those intense family moments that, that have all of that history behind them and all of that memory and all of that tradition. 
And they're full of food and love and family and gatherings and excitement and, and special moments. And so when they gather to eat the Passover, and they do so as disciples, they do so as a family that has formed over three years. We're a family here that has been forming over a number of years. And some of you are here for the first time today, and some of you have been here for years. And the reason why we eat together is not because we sit light to the way church should be, but because we affirm the fact that families eat together. And often memories and relationships and bonding and connection are forged around the table and over food. Table fellowship in the Bible was a massively important thing. It was a massively important thing. I read actually a a story from Greek antiquity of two warriors who when they discovered they they were all poised to to, uh, go into some kind of, not quite gladiatorial, but certainly some kind of contest to see who would kill the other. And they were poised to do it. And then they discovered beforehand that apparently they discovered that their fathers had known each other and that their fathers had shared table fellowship together. And once they found that out, then they couldn't fight each other anymore. That was the power of table fellowship. That if you'd broken bread with somebody and if you'd ate, eaten with somebody, then there was a bond that went deep and rich. In a sense, we kind of lose it in our society and, and some of the modern ways of eating together um, almost abuse the principle of table fellowship. I mean, I quite like a pizza at Paisano down in Miller Street. You know, I enjoy that. I'm never all that comfortable, I have to say, that if you go in with two people and they put you on a trestle table that takes about 16, you know, you're a slot in the middle and you've got randoms here and randoms there. And you can hear their conversation and they can hear yours. I don't know, that compromises the intimacy of table fellowship for me somewhat. I get why they do it. It's good pizza, they turn it over quickly, you're in, you're out, you're fed, it's good. There. Paisano owes me a free pizza. (laughs) Just for the promo. But any place where you share a table with someone accidentally is not the table fellowship that Scripture speaks about or that the Jewish community knew which was rich with relationship and connection, is why we do it here. So that some of you already know each other and others of you get the chance to know that you're welcome and invited to share table. It's why in the context in which we will do communion together. And there's loads of you here today, which is great, but we're going to have to shuffle things around when we get to communion. And in the context of table fellowship then, And in the context of our eating together, and in the context of our communion together, bread has a place. Now, as I said, we're not told in this particular passage of John about the giving of bread or the giving of the wine a new significance. But undoubtedly they were there, and it seems strange to me or curious to me that in the same meal Jesus gave bread to all of the disciples. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And in the same meal, a little later on, he took bread and he gave a piece after he dipped it in the dish to Judas, which was a sign that he would be the betrayer. Twice Judas received bread from the hand of Jesus. 
once along with the others as a symbol of the death that Jesus would die and the brokenness of his body in order to pay for the sins of all who would believe in him. And the other time he put bread in the hand of Judas as a sign that he knew that for all that he would die, for the sins of all who would turn to him, Judas had turned against him. You know, you can imagine the intimacy of that kind of special family gathering. Think of, of beautiful Christmases or family meals or occasions. I don't presume that everybody here has had the, you know, the kind of uh, Coca-Cola American Christmas that, you know, is everyone's supposed to have. But nonetheless, there will be times in your life, gatherings of people, whether family or intimate friends or whatever, that are standouts for you. When the food was good and the lights were low, it was warm and it was cozy. There was fun and there was laughter and there was love in the room and you felt safe. And for that time, all the troubles of the world and your life flew away. And in this moment, it was okay. That's the context. Made all the more powerful by the intimacy of Jesus, the rabbi taking off his outer clothing and washing the feet of his disciples in a way that no rabbi ever would. It was the other way around, as I said when we looked at that passage. People didn't consider themselves worthy even to untie or tie a rabbi's sandals. And here's the rabbi doing foot service to his disciples. And so in that moment of intimacy and shared fellowship, The brutal reality of Judas' betrayal begins to seep into the gathering. I don't know how we get rid of the, the pre-knowledge that we have that it was Judas. We're like, we know it was Judas, right? No spoilers here. Everybody knows it was Judas. We've always known it was Judas. We've always known it was one of Jesus' disciples that betrayed him. Try and get rid of that thought for a moment. Try and imagine yourself with whichever group of intimate relationships stands out most strongly for you. It might be a, a group of really close friends. And if you're at university in the early years, then there's maybe a, a group already formed. When I was at university, I would have known right off who that was. I knew, you know, it was Kathy, Richard, Sylvia, Tim. There was a whole bunch of people, and we, we did everything together. We went in and out of each other's houses. We went out together. We studied together. We got up to mischief together. And I cannot imagine, I cannot imagine what it would feel like if I discovered somewhere along the line in that group of intimate friends that one of the group was actually quietly arranging to get another one in the group killed. Yeah, right there. You see, you put it into your own circle of friends right that. You imagine that one of the people in your group was quietly conspiring to take a contract out or to stab or to kill one of the other members of the group. It's an unthinkable thought, right? Because it's a betrayal of everything that you've established, the trust, the bond, the connection, the experience, the shared history, the time you spent together, the things you've done together, the highs and the lows, the squabbles and the fights, the massive big moments. 
And one of the group is plotting to kill the one who arguably might be seen as the leader of the group. A number of years ago now, I went with a tear fund study trip to Cambodia. And I'll be honest, I didn't know as much as I should have done about the years of Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge between 1975 and 79, when Cambodia underwent its genocide in which two million people died. And I did some reading, and I read one autobiography of, of one guy who had survived the Pol Pot and Khmer Rouge years, but described how he was surviving in a village and he, every family was split up. They split families up because they wanted to break down the family unit. Indeed, they no longer described people as people. They described individuals as work units. They had a Khmer word for it, but individuals were work units. Reduced to that. No other identity. And sent off and dispersed to other villages where they had not lived, where they had no connections. But before they did that, in some communities, they would put people under so much pressure out of fear that they were going to be taken out to the jungle and re-educated. That was the phrase they used. People would be taken out to the jungle and educated, which meant that they would have to dig their own grave and then be hit on the back of the neck with a, a, a shovel, and then they would just be killed and fall in the ditch. And such was the fear and the intensity in that climate that people were grassing in, making up false stories and allegations about other family members or people in their community to deflect attention and as evidence of their own loyalty to the Khmer Rouge. And, and reading that in this, autobi this uh, biography, autobiography that I read, struck me that that's probably one of the lowest marks of humanity, where you will actually trade in another person in order to save your own skin. Somebody that you know and that you love, but you will do that in order to save your own skin. And so in the intimacy of fellowship and gathering, whether Martha, Mary, and Lazarus' home or this Passover meal, there's a jarring note, and it's Judas. And I don't understand, and I don't think anybody can fully get to grips with what it was that happened in Judas' heart or life. I don't pretend to understand the mystery of God's dealings in Judas' life. Jesus said in this passage, I know those that I have chosen. Earlier on in John's gospel in chapter 6, Jesus says, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? How do you square that? That Jesus chose the twelve and chose Judas, included Judas, entrusted Judas with the money, because I don't imagine that he would have been given that responsibility without Jesus' agreement. Jesus trusted Judas to be part of the inner group. Jesus trusted Judas with responsibility. Jesus washed Judas' feet. In that very gathering that we read of here, and all the while knowing what was fomenting in Judas' heart. 
It's a scary thought. And then there's the question, did Judas have a choice then? Was he the fall guy? Was he there because it had to be this way? Did Judas have any other options? But that isn't God's way. And it also removes from Judas his own volition and responsibility and will. He was no puppet, no automaton, not forced or constrained. It was just simply known. And Jesus gave Judas the bread when John quietly asked him. They reclined on couches at an angle, and so John was next to Jesus and was able just to lean back. If you imagine two people elbow on elbow, then John could just lean back against Jesus and quietly ask him the question, Lord, which one is it? Who is it? And I think the answer Jesus gave was a private answer to John's question. It wasn't a a declaration to the room. That makes no sense. It is the one to whom I give. You know, who wants to take that piece of bread? And he gave it to Judas. And we're told that at that point, Satan entered him. But you see, Judas had already decided his actions. Whether swayed by greed and the opportunism of having ready access to the common purse, or whether it was that Judas was disillusioned with the prospect of this Messiah that was refusing to step up and overthrow Rome in the Messiah-like way that he'd expected, we just don't know. We don't know the machinations of Judas' heart, whether he was simply trying to force Jesus' hand by making things move, whether he was trying to inveigle himself with the Pharisees and the Sadducees because he could see that everything was going to go south, and he wanted to make sure that he would be protected when it all went down. We just don't know. But Psalm 41 verse 9 is the verse that Jesus quotes where he says, He who shared my bread has turned against me. It actually says lifted up his heel against me. To lift up your heel against someone was to insult them. And when Jesus gave Judas that piece of bread, it was the moment of fulfillment of Psalm 41 verse 9. It was the moment where Jesus shared his bread with Judas knowing that Judas had already resolved, already made their arrangements, already had his quiet conversations with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the alarming thing is that Judas was called and chosen, and that somewhere along the line, Judas allowed his heart to be hardened. Somewhere along the line, desires for other things, whether it be political ambition or filthy lucre, just money. Tantalizingly, we're not told what it was other than that there was along the way while everybody else was looking in wonder at the miracles of Jesus as Judas went out with one of the rest of the twelve into the villages and proclaimed Jesus and drove out demons and prayed for the sick and saw miracles. But somewhere along the way, Judas's heart hardened. Judas allowed his heart to be hardened. And I suppose Judas is a warning to us all. You know, we could look at our nation 
is a bit Judas-like. <laughs> you know, well, this was a nation that certainly decades or generations ago, not that far ago, would have owned Jesus and honored God. We'd have declared and celebrated the Christian gospel as our religion, as a nation, as a people. We would have been a people who would have been known for our commitment to the Christian faith. The people of Scotland were known as the people of the book. The motto of Glasgow City, let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of the word and the praising of his name. You see, there was a time within my living memory, and I'm not that old, when I can remember a very different shape of nation that honored God and worshiped him and held him in high esteem and believed, at least publicly and for many more people than nowadays privately, that Jesus was indeed the way, the truth, and the life. And yet we've become a Judas nation. <laughs> we've become a nation that we trade all that in for the 30 pieces of silver of our secular humanism or our right to rule and govern and have it all our way. We will trade Jesus in. But it's not a council of despair because Judas did what he would do. And yes, as a nation, we might have turned our backs on the gospel that we inherited from our forebears. But the good news of this passage is that though Judas went to do what Judas would do, he didn't have the last word, and he didn't triumph. He served the kingdom purposes of God in order to bring about events that would lead to Jesus' death and resurrection. But the triumph of the gospel was not Judas's, but Jesus's. Judas stands as a warning to us to check our hearts, to see if we're becoming hard and cynical, if we're allowing other priorities to usurp the place of Jesus and His Lordship in our lives, and to ask if we're allowing the thoughts and actions that seeped into Judas's heart to corrupt ours, allowing the mood and the uh, ambitions and the politics and the voices of the day to corrupt our commitment and our loyalty to King Jesus. Because that's the challenge that we all face. What does it look like to stand up for Jesus, to belong to Him, and to live for Him in a world that Judas-like has gone to the other side? And Jesus gives us the answer in the verses that follow Jesus, uh, Judas' departure. And symbolically and powerfully, we're told that when Judas went out, it was night. It was night in his soul. The light of the world remained in the room with those who remained with him. And when he went out of the presence of Jesus, it was night. You see, if you go out of company with Jesus, however trendy or erudite or politically correct or, or, or cutting edge or in vogue it might be to do that, it's night out there. It's why on both sides of the Atlantic, people are stumbling around in darkness with confusion an uncertainty, and aggression, and division, because it's night where the light of the world is not allowed in. And to those who remained, Jesus charged them to live by the light, 
A new command I give you, love one another. It wasn't a new command in the broadest sense. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. But having just washed his disciples' feet, Jesus had taken the definition of love to a whole new place. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. You see, that is the sign. I've had a street pastor-tastic weekend. I was teaching street pastor trainees on Friday night. I was out on shift Friday over to Saturday. And last night, we had a street pastor's concert in here. So, hat trick. But actually, it just reminds me, because in different ways throughout the weekend teaching it, doing it, and then thinking about it. And this is not really just to do with street pastors. It's to do with how we carry ourselves. What is it that we take out onto the streets, whether as street pastors or wherever else you might go? It is love. Not gooey, wishy-washy love. Not feel-good factor love. But it is the call to be agents and ambassadors of love, to love one another, and to show love in a loveless world where increasingly everyone is for themselves. It's the currency in which we trade on the streets when we do acts of kindness or love for people because people recognize and cannot argue. They think sometimes as street pastors we come to Bible thump, but instead we come to care and to help and to listen, and it disarms people. In a world where everyone is for themselves, it disarms people. Love disarms people. And Jesus commands it. And when everything else has gone to dust, and when Brexit is settled, whether or not we get a Brextension or whatever, I coined that one earlier, and I was quite pleased with that. I wonder if it will catch on, a Brextension. And whether Donald Trump will be impeached or not, who knows? But at the end of all things, Jesus will return, and love will win. And for all the Judases that go out into the night, love will win. And for all the alarming signs and sounds there are in public life and private life in city of Glasgow, the nation of the UK, and the world that we live in, Jesus will win because he has already won. And love triumphs, and it's what he charges you with. It's what he invites you to receive. It's what he asks you to open your heart and allow him to wash you. Your life, if you're not already a Christian, Because everything out there is night. There is no light except in Jesus. And he needs to wash you if you're not already a Christian. He needs to wash your past. He needs to wash your life in the eyes of God. He needs to wash you in the power of his death and resurrection, the blood that he shed, his body broken, that we remember symbolically in bread and wine when we take communion. But he needs to wash your feet and my feet. Yes, Peter made his bold statement at the end, wherever you go, I'll go. He had no idea, bless him. 
And yes, we know that three times Peter denied him because Peter always overstretched himself because he hadn't understood just how much he couldn't do. (laughs) But there's a huge gulf between Judas' deliberate act of betrayal and the hardening and twisting of a heart where the lights went out and the darkness prevailed. And Peter, who clung to Jesus in a bold statement, a defiant statement of his ability to hang in there with even if everybody else failed, and just to get it wrong. We're all here because we've got it wrong. And we come back to Jesus, and we come and ask for his forgiveness. For yes, the times when we've denied him by the way we've lived or the words we've spoken by our lovelessness out there in the world. And we recognize that we need Jesus to keep our hearts soft and to show us our faults and failings and to break us all over again if that's what we need. But we absolutely need to keep coming back because this world is looking for Judas's. This world is looking for people to turn to its own script and agenda, to speak its words and sing its song, to poison hearts. And so we need the grace of God and the power of Jesus. And the good news is that love wins, that love triumphs, and that even though The climate we live in may be dark and uncertain. The climate that Jesus was in at that time was dark and uncertain. And yet all the way to the cross, all the way to the tomb, all the way through downcast faces and heavy hearts beyond those three days, love won and wins.